You know, the Bible is filled with all kinds of seemingly paradoxical views of Jesus. For instance, he's the king of kings, and yet he came to be the slave of all by paying the ransom for our sins. He is the one through whom all things exist, and yet in becoming a human, he had no place to lay his head. He is God's salvation and a light to the Gentiles, and yet he was born as a baby and laid in a humble manger. These are things that do not seem to go together, right? Another seemingly incongruous view of Jesus is that he is both a lion and a lamb. In fact, in Revelation, John hears the proclamation, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. But when he turns around to look at the lion, he sees a lamb that looked as if it had been slain. While to us, these two images, a lion and a lamb, may seem incompatible description to the same person, the Bible contends that they stand together in complete harmony. In fact, Jesus' lamb likeness displays his lion-like nature. We know Jesus as the lion of the tribe of Judah because he is the lamb who was slain. His defeat and death only serves to highlight his victory over Satan. Now, after re- reading this same seemingly paradoxical description of Christ, Jonathan Edwards once wrote, Christ never so effectually bruised Satan's head as when Satan bruised his heel. And in nothing has Christ appeared so much as a lion in glorious strength, destroying his enemies as when he was brought as a lamb to the slaughter. In his greatest weakness, he was most strong. In other words, Christ crucified and Christus victor, Christ the victor, are not paradoxical opposites. I think we tend to think on two separate spectrums, Christ the servant, Christ the king, Christ the lion, Christ the lamb, two separate opposites. That is not true according to the gospel. They are one and the same person. These two realities have been brought together into the same redeemer. It's this very truth that we see in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. We'll deal with verse 16 next week. We have been asking the question, why was it necessary for the Son of God to take on flesh? Why was it necessary for the incarnation? In other words, why Christmas? We have seen so far that it was necessary for Jesus to take on flesh in order for him to reign as king over all things. For things to be submitted and subjected under his royal feet, he had to become a human. But it was also necessary so that he could sanctify us, become like us, and then worship, uh, lead us in worship of God and restored worship. We saw that last week. And now we come to the third reason for the incarnation. The Son of God... I want you to, to, to just feel this deeply this Christmas. Sometimes Christmas goes by so fast that we can't just sip long on the wine of the gospel. So I just want to invite you now just to, just to smell the sweetness, to taste the sweetness, to experience it and to feel it. The Son of God took on flesh in order to die thereby destroying the death dealer, the devil, and delivering his people from, sla- from slavery. Let me just read that one more time. The Son of God took on flesh in order to die, 
thereby destroying the death dealer, the devil, and delivering you from slavery. In other words, Jesus took on the weakness of flesh and blood so that he would lose his life. That was the whole reason for him becoming a baby. It wasn't just so that we'd have a cute little figurehead that we can now put out in our front yard. It's not just so that you can have this beautiful, wonderful celebration on December 25th. Jesus became a baby, took on flesh in order to die and in the process to win our freedom from slavery to death and the devil. In his death, we find his victory. And in beholding his victory, we remember his death. The two go together. So this Advent season, as we dwell upon the truth that God became a man, we are invited to remember the reasons he did so. He became a man to reign as well as to sanctify and restore us. And now, according to the passage at hand, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, He came to destroy death and deliver us from captivity. Hebrews 2.14 begins by saying, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Now, not everyone's familiar with Greek. I hope you know that the New Testament was written in Greek. There are lots of different things that the New Testament writer could have said. He could have said, uh, he could have said something like, since the people, ton leon, share in flesh and blood. Or he could have said something like, since men, ha anthropos, share in flesh and blood. He could have said something like that. People, men, there's even all kinds of other definitions and descriptions of people. But instead, he intentionally says, since the children, ta paideia, since the children share in flesh and blood. Now, why is that? Why would he intentionally use ta paideia? Why would he use the children? Well, I think it emphasizes two things. First, it could be a subtle declaration that Jesus has come explicitly for God's people, God's children, the children. But second, and I think most pertinent to his argument, it emphasizes human weakness. Human weakness. Jesus did not become like strong and powerful men. Jesus didn't come like the man Samson, right? Jesus didn't come like the royal King Caesar. Jesus took on the same flesh and blood as the children. He he goes to the bottom of the barrel of the Greek language and pulls out the smallest, most insignificant noun that he can find. Jesus didn't become like a man. He didn't become like kings. He didn't become just like a servant. He doesn't become like an adult. He doesn't come like people. He becomes like, there it is, children. Smallest description he could find to emphasize the fact that this strong, powerful, almighty God didn't just become like you, he became lower than you, like children. Just blows my mind every time I see it. Their smallness, their vulnerability, their weakness. We just saw a whole bunch of children up here singing. That tiny vulnerability, he took that on himself in humility. He took on the same flesh and blood as children. Have you ever thought of just the profoundness of our Advent celebration that the sovereign son of God could be wrapped in a baby's blanket? In a baby's blanket. 
when we had our uh, first couple of children, um, I, I think you guys know that there's a point in time that you have to give up your bed, right? Like, you know, it's just they cry, and the only way they're going to go back to sleep is if they take over your space. And, uh, and I just remember one night waking up freezing cold, right? And there's Rachel and the baby, and they've got the covers, and I have nothing. Except for my baby's blanket. <laughs> I can't wrap my bicep around that thing. But the sovereign son of God was wrapped in a baby's blanket. That thing wasn't... That thing wasn't sufficient to even keep my shoulder warm. And the son of God who created the Milky Way and all these miraculous, amazing elements of the universe, the stars that we see at night, the sun, the moon, all these things wrapped in a baby's blanket. How could someone so infinitely high become so infinitely low? Not just like men but like the children. God became a baby. Sometimes we say God became a man, and that's absolutely true. But I just think there's sometimes that the impact of saying God became a child, a baby, just carries on it a little more flesh and blood than we sometimes feel. Became weak, small, vulnerable, it's just a mystery, isn't it, how God could do that? How do, you, how do you wrap God in that kind of flesh? It's something that we can think about for all eternity, and yet, as we think about it and dwell on it for all eternity, we will never come one step closer to fully understanding how sovereign God could be wrapped in flesh, wrapped in a baby's blanket, and fit, laid inside a manger. Just, just doesn't do its justice. In, in his great condescension, though, I think we see Jesus's great love for us. He went from the highest to the lowest, from the throne to childhood, to babyhood, to diapers and swaddling cloth and this kind of babyish, babyishness. Son of God took on that. I think it's a poor analogy, but we see a small glimpse of this kind of love. Whenever we see a big, strong man playing gently in the floor with his children. Some of you remember this about your dads, right? This is big, strong guy, you know, and being in the floor. It's, it's, it's amazing when you see someone so big and strong and powerful laying in the floor and becoming like a child, right? Um, I just think about the dads, all my hearts go out to you that have daughters and you sit at the the tea table with your pinky out and little dainty teacup and your big fingers can't send the wrap around the cup. I mean, it's, it's, it's a beautiful condescension. Most dads, most dads could easily outplay, outwit, outwrestle, and outstrategize their kids. It's not true for everybody, but for most dads, they could easily win every game, right? Just think of the way that your dad used to, you could, could have owned you in checkers, and yet didn't quite pull the move that would have beat you. They could have pinned down their kids in every bout. But a dad who loves his kids becomes like them. He gets in the floor with them. He can be taken down by them, pinned. Grown man pinned by his kids. 
He's at times beaten in the foot race. He's outmoved in the checker game. It's a touching display when we see such a grown man become like a child. And yet that's about as close as we can come to condescension in our human experience. There's just simply nothing like it. When it comes to applying it to the Trinity and the triune God and what he has done in his work, especially as it concerns the incarnation, any analogy we give ultimately falls short. I mean, I was scraping the bottom of the barrel for an example of how Jesus took on flesh and became man and what kind of condescension that is. And the only example I could think of is this grown man playing in the floor with his children, becoming like a child. And yet there's a infinite difference. Jesus didn't become like a child, Jesus became a child. If a grown man could reinvent his own flesh and become a baby, and if that grown man were infinite creator, then the analogy might fit. But there's no analogy that fits. Jesus became a child. He did not lessen or hold back any of his divine power, but he did empty himself of his divine right to be honored as God. He could have commanded the rocks to become bread, and yet he chose hunger in order to experience life as we do. He could have commanded legions of angels to deliver him from his oppressors, and yet he allowed himself to be held down, tied up, beat up and then nailed to the cross so that we could be healed by his wounds. He had the power to bring himself down from the cross. When they're taunting him, save yourself, he could have. He had absolute ability to do so, and yet it would have meant our death if he did so. And so he stayed and he died and was held down and swallowed up by death. When people looked at Jesus, they were blind, as people are today, to his true majesty. They only saw a man of Nazareth. They saw a man dressed in rags. They saw a man who was homeless. For most, he was not even a man worth looking at. He certainly didn't seem like a king. And yet, in his condescension, we see a hidden majesty that can be seen only through eyes of faith. And we see a great love in which our God doesn't just come down on our level, he becomes a child to save us. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he partook of the same. He became a child. The question remains though, why was it necessary for him to become a child? The author writes that Jesus' incarnation was essential because through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. The incarnation underlines, underlies our doctrine of substitutionary death, right? We believe that Jesus died in our place, but in order for us to believe that, we have to have a Jesus who has skin. We have to have Jesus who has blood and bones. We have to have Jesus that you can touch. If you don't have a Jesus you can touch, there's no such thing as substitutionary atonement because there's no, there's no human savior to take your place. So underlying even our most profound doctrine that Jesus died for me is the fact that he became a human. He took on flesh to die. Only flesh and blood beings die. And so in order to die, the son of God had to become flesh and blood. In other words, he stood in our place of condemnation and received the just execution that we deserve 
explicitly because he had become a human. By becoming a human, he was able to receive a human death. And what exactly did his death accomplish? And this is where the the author hovers around for a little while because he wants you to see how great a salvation you've been given because Jesus became a man and because he died a man's death. According to Hebrews, the incarnation brought about two things. It brought about destruction and deliverance. Destruction and deliverance. As to destruction, the author says that Jesus' death was necessary in order to destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Now the word for destroy can also be translated as abolish, which perhaps is a better understanding because the, the author is not saying that Satan is no more, or that Satan's been completely wiped off the map. What he is saying though is that the one who once held the power of death holds it no more. He has lost it. He has been dethroned. He has lost his powerful, uh, powerful position as the death dealer. Is this not what the rest of Scripture says about what God has done in Christ to Satan? God is sovereign over life and death. God is sovereign over who lives and who dies. And yet, because Satan tempted the first people and led them into death and sin, he is the one who's attributed as the one who holds the power of death. God is ultimately sovereign. Satan's not more sovereign than God. However, because he's the great tempter and because it's through his temptation that we've been brought into death and sin and under its reign, he is kind of this new wicked uh, uh, kidnapper in a sense. And Hebrews chapter two is saying that he has been robbed of his power. He's been robbed of his captives. Satan and death are the terrible enemies of humanity. You know, we, we, if I were to ask you, who's your worst enemy? It probably wouldn't be the first few names on your lips. Death, sin, and Satan are your terrible enemies. They're the ones that want no good thing for you. However, God's a just God, right? Which means that he can't just simply wipe them out of existence. When humanity sinned and fell at the garden, they were subjected under the devil's reign and under death's reign. Now, we would think that a sovereign God could just clap his hands and write everything back, make everything, fi- fix it all, right? And, and reverse it all. But because he's a just God, he, sim- he, can't not, he cannot just simply undo death and the devil just like that. Sin must be punished. That's the truth that we have of a holy and just God. Sin must be punished. The logic for this is not all that difficult to follow. If you have an infinitely good God and you reject that infinitely good God, that mandates an infinitely bad and just punishment. You do something against that's something, you do something wrong against someone that's infinitely good and perfect, you get an infinitely bad result out of that. That's death. That infinitely just punishment is the fact that we now must all be subjected to death. For the wages of sin is death. And because every person sins, every person must face that reality. You and I, we may be different ages, we may be in different backgrounds, we may be different ethnicities, we may have different jobs, it doesn't matter. Every single one of us, because we are sinners, 
face the reality of death. It's breathing down your neck at this very moment. Could come in 20 years. Could come in 80. I certainly think there won't be many of us still around in 100. But death is a reality for us all. It's simply inescapable for sinful humanity. However, God in his grace, though he had been infinitely rejected, and though he was infinitely good, in that infinite goodness sent his infinitely perfect son to turn back man's infinite rebellion. The good and perfect son of God took on himself the infinite just punishment, death itself. He took the dregs of the poison that we deserved. He took the execution in himself so that those who trust in him would not have to bear it on their own. That's the point of the gospel that we have. He, he, that's, that's exactly what the gospel tells us in that he took on flesh in order to die your death, your execution. The plan to undo death required nothing short than the death of the perfect, infinite, holy son of God. Do you realize there was no other way? No angel could die that death because he's not infinitely perfect and good. Yes, they might be uh, uh, perfectly moral in the fact that they've never sinned, but they're not able to take on the death because they're not infinite God. They're not able to take your punishment. There was simply no other way than for the son of God to wrap himself in skin, to become a human and to die your death in your place in order for salvation to work. It had to happen in that way. In Genesis chapter 3, 15, God foretold that a son of the woman would come and would crush the head of the serpent. But in the process, the serpent would bruise his heels. The first statement of substitutionary death that we get. Hebrews teaches the same concept by saying that Jesus submitted himself to death in order to destroy the infamous death dealer, Satan. He was stabbed with the sword that Satan held in order to disarm him. That's just the, the amazing reversal that we see in the gospel. Stabbed with, the, with Satan's sword so that Satan wouldn't hold the sword anymore. He disarmed him by receiving Satan's blow. I just, by way of analogy, the, the serpent bites, it's now fangless because the fangs are in the son's heel, which is now on top of the serpent's head. It's amazing reversal that by death, he saves us from the one who holds the power of death. He caused the devil's power to backfire. Referring again to Jonathan Edwards, he saw the ironic beauty of this. And he writes, it was principally by the means of those sufferings that he conquered and overthrew his enemies. Christ never so effectually bruised Satan's head as when Satan bruised his heel. The weapon with which Christ warred against the devil and obtained a most complete victory and glorious triumph over him was the cross, the instrument and weapon with which he thought he had overthrown Christ and brought upon him a shameful destruction. This is amazing reversal that Satan thought he had him. The cross was it. It was the defeat of the son of God. God's purposes are now at an end. And yet in God's perfect providence, this is exactly how his promises are going to come about. 
Satan bit down hard on Christ and in the process died under his foot. Jesus cloaked his strength in the weakness of flesh and death. But the power of the resurrection proved that through his weakness came the strong, unstoppable redemption of God. You kill the son of God, you do nothing more than advance the plan of God. A seemingly foolish plan. I mean, just just think of us. If God would have, if God would have told us this plan before it ever happened, if God would have told us, but you did in the Old Testament, if He would have asked for our advice, what do you think about this plan? None of us would have thought this was a good idea. That the Son of God would die. And in the process, destroy death. But that's exactly what's come about. He became weak like a lamb in death, but it was through his death and his resurrection that he was vindicated as the lion of Judah, as the lion of heaven, the king of heaven. Satan has been defeated by his own poison-tipped weapon. Now, all that's great news. Death has been defeated. The one who held the power of death has been defeated. But we come even now to even another great truth of this. He didn't just come for Satan's destruction and for the destruction of the power of death. He came for our deliverance. By taking on flesh, he was able to die. And by dying, he delivered all through uh, all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. My friends were all impacted by death. I think, I think of the people here who have been impacted by the loss of a loved one. I think there's some of us here that uh, may even argue, hey, I, I'm not bothered by death. There's, there's all kinds of non-believers out there who say, we're not bothered by death. We're living life. It doesn't really bother us. So Hebrews 2 must not be true. We're not in slavery to fear of lifelong death. Who's afraid of death? I'm not. I don't think that we're being honest when we say those kinds of things. We are, in fact, bothered by death. People deal with death in a number of ways. Some try to ignore it. Some try to obsess about it. Some try to avoid it. They self-medicate and distract themselves by uh, pursuing the maximum pleasures before death takes them. We live in a culture itself that tries to clean up death. We want everybody, we want him to look like he's asleep, right? Because we don't want anybody to think of the gruesome details of death. I mean, we, we have millions of dollars of chemicals to wipe off blood off the highway or to embalm a person so they look somewhat alive. My friends, we're all bothered by death at some level. You may be in one of those categories. You may be someone that's like, you know what? I don't like to think that I'm going to die, so I'm living my best life now so I can be distracted by it. You might be someone who's obsessed by death, just absolutely terrified You think about it all the time. The slightest little breeze changes and you suddenly become afraid that a a hurricane's coming in the middle of Texas to take you away. There's some of you who just may not want to think about just kind of plodding away. Just just keep your eyes straight on. The point is, is that we're all enslaved by this fear. We all are impacted in some way. But Christ came to set us free from the slavery of, that the fear of death brings, to absolutely change it, so that we don't have to obsess about it. We don't have to avoid it. We don't have to turn our face away from it. We can look death straight in the face and know that there's been a victory wrought by Jesus himself. We don't have to look away. We don't have to be afraid. We can live in the freedom of knowing that 
we have life and life abundantly. Even if death tried to knock on the door, it cannot keep us forever. It's been defeated. Now, when I was reading about Jesus delivering us from slavery and, and these images, that even just the word deliver comes back to the Exodus. It's this idea of God's people being stuck to this tyrannical Pharaoh, and he won't let them go. You know the story, right? You guys know the song too, Let My People Go. Uh, so God's people stuck in captivity to Pharaoh. God gives away through the Passover lamb where death is brought down and it judges the enemies of God's people and at the same time sets them free. Through the Passover, death comes down, judges enemies and sets God's people free. That's exactly what we see happening with Christ. In Christ's death, Jesus brought down judgment on our great enemy, our spiritual Pharaoh. He brought down judgment on Satan. And in that judgment, he also brought deliverance to his people. The satanic Pharaoh has fallen, and now we can pass by in victory. We can pass by out of slavery as free people of God. Colossians 2 adds to this thought, saying that it is through the cross that Jesus has disarmed the rulers and authorities. He's put them to open shame by triumphing over them. It's amazing how amazing this is. That day, like when you think of Satan, when you think of the devil, right? I think we all think of this real big bad guy, right? Think of death. We obviously think of someone that's creepy, weird. You know, it is this big, powerful being, right? And when we, when we personify death in movies, I mean, he's, he's always just this sinister, monstrous kind of guy. Death and the devil paraded in humiliation because of the cross of Christ. Paraded and disarmed. Hanging their heads in shame. That image of the devil, as prideful as he is, having to lower his high head as he walks by me because Jesus has beaten him and saved me from him. And he marches by in this humiliating procession stripped and disarmed of all of his power. Hebrews 2 teaches us that great truth. Only in the death of God's perfect son could justice and grace, judgment and salvation be mingled together in such a perfect, victorious redemption. Now, what does that freedom, that deliverance mean for us as believers? I think it simply means this. So we've, we've got at least three applications that can come from this. It simply means that we need not be chained by the fear of death. Can I just give you permission from scripture to not be afraid of dying? To not dwell on it. To not, to not look at the graveyard with trepidation. The grave has lost its victory and death has lost its sting. What better of a gift to receive at Christmas than a powerless death? I think of Pilgrim's Progress. I don't know if you've ever read it, but John Bunyan describes this moment when Pilgrim, he's the, he's the hero, he's the Christian. He sees, he sees down the path, he sees two lions standing. And at first he's afraid and he doesn't want to go any further. He wants to turn back and go home. It's not worth it. Why face the lions? And it's at the moment that he begins to turn back that, the porter, that this porter, the, the guy that's supposed to help him cross the mountain, sees him and cries out, is thy strength so small 
Fear not the lions, for they are chained and are placed there for trial of faith where it is and for discovery of those that have none. Keep in the midst of the path and no hurt shall come unto thee. I just think of that. And I think of the way that we look at death. And as we're looking ahead at our death, we see a lion in the road. And many of us are tempted to turn back. If that's what we face, then it's not worth it. And it's at that moment that the gospel calls out and says, don't be afraid. It's chained. Stick to the path and it can't hurt you. Stick to the path and it can't maul you. It cannot bite and devour as it once did. Death is not the same for God's people now that Jesus has died. It's completely different. Is it scary? Yes. But it is a death that has no teeth or claws. It cannot forever wound you. I mean, we got this great gospel that tells us that even if death itself were to try to bite down, no harm can come to the people of God. We might die. We might get put in the ground, but we obnoxious and annoying people to death keep popping up out of it when Jesus comes back. He can't hold us down. Death has been defeated. Walk in the middle of the path. Keep your eyes fixed on the celestial city. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus and death. The chained lion cannot hurt. It can growl. It can roar. It can make you tremble. And yet it is a toothless, clawless cat. Nothing more. He has defeated death. Second, our freedom mandates a change in master. Whereas we were once slaves to death and the devil We're now free from their bondage, which means that we're free to obey God. You see, I think all of us want to be told the truth that God has set us free from slavery to death. We all like that. That's good news, right? He set us free from slavery to the fear of death and to the devil who had the power over death. But we've got to take it a step further. Jesus didn't just save us from slavery to one aspect of the fall, the fear of death. He also set us free from all the works of the devil, not just death, but also sin and temptation. Think of how foolish it would have been for the Israelites who had been saved from death through the Passover lamb, who are now ready to walk through Egypt as free people to decide to stay under Pharaoh's rule. Ah, It's not a bad place to live. They got melons here. How foolish would that have been? My friends, to do such a thing would be a terrible dismissal and rejection of all that the Lord had done for them. Now, in the same way, when we continue in our sin and in our fear, we dismiss the fact that the Lord has set us free from captivity. We dismiss it. That Jesus has come, that he has died so that we need not be held in bondage to death or the devil ever again. Christians need not be afraid and Christians should not sin. Not only must our old fears no longer rule us, but so also our old sins should lose their grip on our lives. If you read the New Testament, you see over and over and over again, a warning against resubmitting yourself back into slavery after Jesus has set you free. 
He who the Son has set free is free indeed. But then you get Galatians chapter 4, verse 1. Do not submit yourself back to slavery. Amazing, profound warning. Just because you've been set free from Egypt doesn't mean that you sometimes don't walk right back into it. How many Christians have I met that because of the saving blood of Christ, yes, in the absolute truest sense, they are free. Free as they willingly handcuff themselves back into sexual addiction, back into fear of all forms, back into hatred and old hostilities, back into gossip and anger, back into pride. They submit themselves back, though they've been free. You've been set free so that now there is now absolutely nothing that can keep you from having peace with someone else. But you don't realize how they talked to me the other night. Submit ourselves back again to to slavery? You are free to love your spouse like Christ loves his church. But you don't realize how undisciplined she is. Resubmission. Jesus has died, according to 1 John chapter 3, to destroy the works of the devil. Christian, do not put one more brick back up after Jesus has demolished it. He toppled it over. And in our pornography, we put a brick back up. In our anger, in our lust, in our gossip, in our fear, in our obsessions, we rebuild a wall that Christ destroyed. It's like, it's like the cask of Amontillado. If you've ever, if you've ever read that uh, Edgar Allan Poe story, we've willingly walked into our own prison cell. And not only that, we're standing in the corner and we're putting brick by brick back up to slowly brick our way back into slavery. Christians are the ones, and I, now I think the whole world is blind, and I think that, that, that the world doesn't see themselves as they truly are, as sinful and broken and as much as need of a Savior. But my friends, I would be remiss if I said that they were the only ones who sometimes are blind. We are the ones who see and we keep our hands over our eyes. We are the free people of God. We are no longer in need to submit ourselves to the old ways. And yet, time and time again, we willingly walk right back into Egypt and say, Pharaoh, here I am, take me again. My friends, you are free from fear, free from death, free from the devil. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. That's a powerful statement. The devil will run from you when you resist him in your faith. Isn't that contrary? Because wasn't it used to the other way around? Wasn't he the Tom and we were the Jerry? And now Tom's running from Jerry. Ephesians 6 says things like, Stand in the strength of the Lord, wear his armor, and stand against the schemes of the devil. We can stand against the devil now? Really? And have victory? 1 John 3, 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. 
The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. My friends, when people see our lives, they should see nothing but the once, the, the ruined, once powerful walls of sin and slavery to death and see them completely toppled and nothing but dust standing in the way. And yet, in a lot of our lives, there's construction projects going on at this moment. What are you doing? Not living in the freedom of Christ, but rebuilding what Christ came to topple over. My friends, the sad reality of it is that when we give ourselves back to sin, when we submit ourselves back to fear, we are going backwards in history. Backwards in history. We don't have to fear what awaits the country in 2022. We don't have to like it. But we don't have to fear it. What's going to come January 1st, 2022? I have no idea. I do know this. Even if it's death itself, it no longer has me in its captivity. I am free. I will not fear. And I won't resubmit myself back to slavery in the next year. Every year we need to be joining in the work of demolishing and crushing the walls of sin and rebellion. I think third, this is the third application that gets. If we've been set free, we are, we are free from our fear of death, right? We are also free from our slavery to sin. I think, and I want to end on this hopefully celebratory note, we have reason to have joy, to be happy people of God. The author of Hebrews writes all this not only to convince Jewish readers why they should not abandon their faith, but he writes to them to encourage them to have joy in the midst of their suffering. My friends, you have all had a tough year. They had it tougher, just so you know. Some of them were pushed out of their Jewish families. There was no celebrating Hanukkah with mom and dad because mom and dad are mad at them for following Jesus. There's no going to the temple to pray for the advent to come because the temple authorities don't let them in anymore. There's no going out shopping and making merry because Caesar doesn't believe in Christmas. Might just lose your head. You go asking what the Christmas cells are. They had it worse. And yet his goal is that they will have joy in suffering. That even in the midst of this bitterness, they will taste the sweetness of the gospel. My friends, sometimes we walk around as if all we can taste is the bitterness. And we proclaim to the world that there is no sweetness in the gospel. I'm not saying that there's not reasons to mourn. My friends, I've done my share of suffering. I'm not going to compare that to anybody else's suffering by any means, because we all suffer in different ways. And I don't want to lessen your suffering by any, by, by any inch, any margin. I don't want to, I want to lessen it at all. At the same time, there is, it is unfathomable to think of a suffering that can outdo the sweet goodness of the fact that God became a man and delivered us from our worst enemies. It's hard to imagine anything so bad or so wrong in life that it would overcome that great truth. 
Did you lose your job this year? The gospel and the good news of the gospel sweetens even that bitterness. Did you lose a loved one this year? The gospel sweetens that bitterness. It is still good news. We are Christians who live in good, joyful news. The shepherds that sang and, and, and told about the, the, what the angel had told them in the field, they still died. They were still poor. They still smelt like sheep afterwards. But it was still good news and great joy to all men. Can I just ask you to, to apply this sermon in, in, in a couple of ways here with this, especially in celebration? Be sad if you're sad, but make merry. Have joy. Sometimes we sit in our sadness and we think that all we can do is sit in the grief and in the mourning, and yet the gospel breathes in the joy and the peace. My friends, there's no one denying the fact that in this long winter where death has reigned, that there is still patches of snow and ice, and it's still cold outside. And yet, because Jesus became a man, the dawn of the restoration has already come and the snow and ice is already beginning to melt. It's already beginning to to show flowers that blossom and bloom. Do we see so much of the snow and ice that we fail to see the flowers that are blossoming even right now? We live in a now and not yet reality where not all the good promises of God have come, but yet still we have tasted of enough to see, to say we are those who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. So just as a biblical exhortation to you this Christmas, go through your suffering faithfully. Allow there, however, to be times where you celebrate, even in the midst of your mourning and your loss. Light the candles, put up the tree. Don't just eat, feast and get fat. Drink the hot chocolate. Light the fire. Play with your kids. Sing. Belt it out. Watch the cheesy Christmas movies. Take on all the gaudiness of Christmas and celebrate. Red and green may not be your colors, but if that's what it takes for you to experience a little bit of joy, then do it. Give presence to other people. Laugh. Make new family traditions. My family and I, we have dared to have joy this Christmas. We have blocked out this whole week from Monday to to Saturday. We are not doing a single thing at night for anybody else but to celebrate with our family. You know what we're doing to Monday night? We're having a family Advent Christmas game night. We're playing things like Jingle Bell Toss, where my kids are going to throw little jingle bells into red solo cups, right? We've got this uh, game called Keep Your Mitts Off, where we put these, these cooking mitts, these hot oven mitts on them, and we have this present that's wrapped four or five different times, and they have to try to open it up and discover what the family game for the year is, because every... Christmas, we buy a game that we're going to celebrate and play together as a family for the next year. This year, it's something like, close your ears, Throw Throw Burrito, which is a card game and a dodgeball game all wrapped up in one. Do you want to know why we do this? 
Why can we enjoy throwing burritos at each other? Because Jesus became a man. Because the dark isn't so dark anymore. Because death has been defeated. And I can have fun with my kids. My friends, this Christmas, I don't want to lessen your suffering. Weep the tears. Look at the pictures. Cry about the ones that are not there with you. But cry and weep and mourn. And then laugh and sing and eat. It's the weird paradox that we live in at this moment. Yet these two paradoxical things are not all that paradoxical. At Christmas, our deep darkness and mourning and our deep light and joy come together beautifully. Just like Jesus, the God who became a man, is a perfect being with no imperfection. And we do so knowing that there's a day when every morning, every darkness, every sorrow will be gone. There will be nothing but feasting and laughing and playing and singing together again. So, my friends, I mean this when I say it. Merry Christmas. Have a very merry Christmas. Pray. Father God, we live in a profound gospel and in a profound paradoxical world. And yet, Father, you are the God who has sent your son to die so that death could be defeated. Now, Father, I pray that we will have joy this Christmas as we not just partake and observe, but celebrate. God, we love you for what you have done. We thank you and we pray that you will help us to make merry in our hearts and to keep Christmas well because of what Jesus has done for us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.